Are you ready for God's word? Are you ready? Um, are you ready online? If you're ready online, go ahead and, and put I'm ready in the chat. Just drop it. Say, come on, or I'm ready, or put a fire emoji, um, any of that. And then if you're online, share the share the stream. Share it on your Facebook, or if you can share YouTube, or you can share. If you can share it, share it. Somebody might need some hope. They might need some encouragement. And I promise today's going to end in hope and encouragement. That's my promise to you. And if, if I don't end there, you can have your money back. <laughs> That's my infomercial. Anyways, um, but yeah, we're ready for God's word. Um, grab your copy of scripture, whatever it is, if it's digital or analog, grab your Bible and turn with me to Job chapter one. And I'm watching Josh to see if he reacts again, because in the nine, he was started laughing when I said Job. Job chapter one. And Josh is laughing because anybody knows when a pastor is about to preach from the book of Job, it's about to get real up in here, right? Like, Job, really? Like, I, you said it was going to be encouraging, and you now you want us to turn to the book of Job? <laughs> yeah, I want you to turn to Job, and yeah, it's going to be encouraging. Job, and chapter 1. Believe it or not, you may, may not know this, but um, the book of Job is actually the first book of poetry in the Bible. You didn't know that. Job is poetic. Yeah, and it's the way that it's written. Um, it has a certain form uh, that makes it fall into the category. Most of you are like, I would never be quoting poetry from Job. <laughs> like, you know, like the Psalms, yes. You know, like Song of Solomon, that's your pickup lines. Um, these are the jokes, people. <laughs> I didn't say they were good jokes. I just, these are the jokes. Anyways, in Song of Solomon, you just can't read it till you're 18. Um, people are like, their Bible's so PG. You hadn't read your Bible, man. You got to read your Bible. Anyways, but Job is actually the oldest book. It's the first book chronologically in the Bible. It's the oldest. Um, it actually takes place like in the days of Abraham, but it was the first book written. And um, Job is 42 chapters long. It's broken into four parts. There's a prologue. That's the first two chapters. Then chapter 3 through 37, that's when Job's friends show up. Like if you read Job and you know about his friends, he needs new friends. <laughs> Anybody need new friends? Put your hand down. That's what, especially if they're sitting beside you. That's so rude. Um, but... But, but Job's friends come, and, and from chapter 3 through 37, they try to help Job understand why bad stuff happens. And Job is, is Jewish, but, um, but his friends really aren't, and they kind of represent the best of man's carnal reasoning apart from God. And essentially, here is the tension of those chapters from 3 through 37, from 3 through 37, they're trying to determine what God's justice is supposed to look like. And this is really the question. If God is really just, then why does bad things, why do bad things happen to good people? So they keep saying, wait a second, our analysis of the justice of God is that if, since God is just, if you're good, you get good. And if you're bad, you get bad, right? Now, how simple and two-dimensional, if not one-dimensional, would that be? But that's it's wisdom that we still kind of subscribe to. In fact, even in the church world, even in the church world, something goes wrong with a Christian and we're still kind of like, mm-hmm. 
I wonder what they had did. Mm-hmm. We don't mean to. And when something bad happens to us, we turn into Job. I am not guilty. But it still happens. And so we go through these, these chapters with, with these friends. If you're looking for baby names, it's Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu. Looking for baby names, there they are. Zophar, I kind of like that one. has a good ring to it. Especially if they're going to be like in the, an illusionist or something like that. But these friends show up and they're trying to reason out with Job and they keep basically telling Job, Job, you must have done something. Have you ever had a friend come to help inventory your life of what you surely did wrong at some point? What a great friend. Like in your worst moment, when they come by and say, let's go through it together. Let's go through it again. What, now, what was it you did? You had to do something. Come on, we'll help you. Remember that time in high school? And they want to help you talk about your worst moments, that's so helpful. That was sarcasm. And so this goes on, and Job maintains, like, here's the problem. I'm innocent, and still bad things happen. And finally, in verse, uh, or chapter 38 through 41, God talks. And he starts with questions. He's like, Job, y'all been asking me questions. Now I have some questions. Basically, his questions were, did you make the sunrise this morning? Did you build the birds? <laughs> You've heard of build, build a bear, but <laughs> not, not the same, not the same. And so God starts saying, you know, look, I created this universe. Did you do any of this? You know, and he and Job have what I call a come, a come to Jesus meeting. And then there's the, the epilogue which is um, the last chapter, chapter 42. But here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line of Job, because we think Job is going to address the idea of suffering. And, and even in some ways, sometimes you read it because you're like, I want to find something in there that explains what I'm going through and the suffering that I'm dealing with or the hardships that I'm facing. And the bottom line is Job comes to two basic conclusions. <laughs> They're not going to help you, but then you'll know. And some of you are like, why not? It's like the cliff notes. Like now I don't have to read, you know, it's like the review. I don't know. Now I don't have to read Job, like 42 chapters of my life saved. But I would encourage you to read it anyways. But, but it comes down to number one is, is that we as humans don't have the perspective to assess God's application of judgment. As humans, we don't have a deep enough understanding to assess his application of justice. Like it'd be really nice. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get, that'd be really great if it happened that way. But the universe is more complex and we just don't have enough understanding and we don't have a deep enough perspective to judge the job that God is doing with justice. The second thing is the universe was not designed to keep suffering from happening. So bottom line, now are we all encouraged? Let's pray and go home. Lord, we just thank you. <laughs> but I, I want to talk about it. So we're going to read um, some, some verses together. I'm going to read Job 1, 1 through 3, then 6 through 12, then jump to chapter 2. So we're going to jump around a little bit, but it says, it says this. If you have Job chapter 1, verse 1, in the land of us, and that's us, not Oz. <laughs> There's no man behind the curtain here. In the, in the land of us, there lived a man whose name was Job. 
There was a, a person that had just come to faith in Christ and they were unemployed. So they read this book because they needed a job. But boy, were they discouraged after. It's kind of like when a baby Christian grabs Leviticus. <laughs> Some of you are laughing because you've read Leviticus. There's a whole chapter on what to do if you have a scab. In Leviticus. Read it. You'll, it'll change your life. Man, his name was Job. This man was blameless, upright, feared God, shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and he had a large number of servants. He was the great, look at this. This is in the Bible, so it must be true. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. It's incredible. Then we're going to jump to verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Notice this. Satan came with the angels to present himself. In other words, just let me just make this point. He had to wait in line and take a number and get an appointment to meet with God. Because so many times the enemy in your life will convince you he's just as big or just as powerful as God. No, 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 no. He doesn't meet with God without an appointment. Like he has to try to get on God's daytimer. <laughs> daytimer. That's a throwback to like the 90s when we didn't have everything on our phone. But anyways, you get what I'm saying? And so, so the Lord said, hey, Satan, where have you come from? And he said, roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth. Um, and then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? I just want to say, if you've ever thought, I wish I was at the top of God's list. <laughs> you may want to clarify which list you want to be at the top of. Just a thought. You know what's cool about this? And let me say this. This is a throwback to praise party, but I just felt quickly to say it. So um, we assume when bad happens to our life, it's because we don't have the favor of God. But the story of Job tells, tells us the person who had the most favor of God, bad still happened in their life. So your circumstance is not determining the amount of favor on your life nor is your circumstance the testimony that there is no favor on your life. So, so as a good word, somebody, that was what you needed. You can log off. No, I'm just kidding. Stay. <laughs> yeah, stay. Um, then the Lord said, have you considered Job? There's no one like him. He's blameless and upright. Man, who fears God and shuns evil. Does, and then it's what Satan said. Does Job fear you for nothing, God? For haven't you put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has time out? It's a good, good point. I'm sorry. We're going to get to it. We're going to get to the rest of the message, but these are like baby messages that warm us up. You know, you got to stretch before you get into the workout. Are you with me? We're stretching right now. But here's the interesting thing. There was a hedge, we'll say a hedge of protection, around Job and everything he had. Now, here's the interesting thing. Satan could see the hedge and couldn't penetrate the hedge. God knew the hedge was there and placed it there. Job had no idea there was a hedge. Maybe you need to thank God for the hedge you didn't see. Because if you got this far, there's been a hedge around something. You've been protected from something. You've been brought through something. Some way the enemy wanted to get at your life, but God wouldn't allow it. God protects you, kept you, led you, looked after you. And sometimes we get so focused on where the enemy came in that we forget all the places God kept him out. It's a good sermon. Somebody wanted to preach it. 
He said, you've blessed the work of his hands and the flocks and herds throughout. And you've blessed everything he has all throughout the land. Verse 11. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said, very well, then everything he has in your power. But you can't lay a finger on him. And Satan went out. Jump to verse two. And you know the story. Job loses everything. All of his herds and cattle and his children die in a windstorm. It's bad. And so all that's happened. Then we get to chapter two, verse one. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said, where have you come from? And Satan said, oh, I've been looking through the earth again. And then I think verse three is all about God rubbing it in his face. Because remember, the devil said, if you, if you take everything he has, he'll curse you. And the devil took everything that he had and Job didn't curse God. So when the devil said, oh, I've been out roaming around, God said, have you considered Job? I think it's kind of like a kind of like in your face kind of. You know what I'm saying? Like, remember what you said and Job's still with me and. And then God goes on, there's no one like him. He's blameless, he's upright, fears God, shuns evil, and he still, has, he still maintains his integrity. Though you incited me against him to his ruin without any reason. And, and Satan said, skin for skin, a man will give all he has for his life. Now stretch out here and strike his flesh and bones and he'll curse you to your face. And then the Lord said, very well, he's in your hands, but you, you have to spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And then Job, now here's you a picture. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it. Now here's the phrase, as he sat among the ashes. Sat among the ashes. Now we're talking this series is about, we call this series Up in Smoke. Up in Smoke. What's left is ashes. And we talked about that phrase up in smoke is, is, is a colloquial phrase that means there's now a permanent outcome that was not expected. We had great plans, 2020, had great plans for our business. It's gone up in smoke, had great plans, but it's gone up in smoke. And here Job had great plans for his life, but they have gone up in smoke. And it says this, and, and Job sat among the ashes. Okay, here's, here's my title. You can put it in the chat. You can write it down. I want to talk today about owning your ashes. Owning your, oh, it's going to be good. Owning your ashes. Can we, can we pray? I have a big, long prayer, a couple hours. Jesus, help us own our ashes. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, I told you my story, and, and well, I didn't tell you my story, but you kind of know. And 2020 was by far the worst year of my life. Went through something I never expected. It's very hard, very painful, very dark. Didn't like it. And that's why I've been out for a while, obviously. Now, if you're new and you don't know all about that, you don't need to know much other than it was bad. And, and I remember one day I have a counselor. I think counselors are good. I don't have a counselor because I'm crazy. I have a counselor because I'm healthy. Um, and I want to be as healthy as I can too, obviously. And how many know the battle's always between your ears and sometimes you need to talk to somebody about some stuff going on in there because there's some stuff going on there that ain't right. That's not right. And so, um, but I have a counselor and, and the same counselor I've had for about four years. And, um, and so I remember a few months ago we were talking and we do our pleasantries. We meet via Zoom because he's out of Dallas and um, incredible guy. 
And he said, how are we doing today? Or however he asked the question that you get started on. And I said, today, I'm going to give you the counselor word for how I'm doing today. I've been through a lot of counseling. That's why I'm so healthy. Um, <laughs> your laughter is traumatizing. Um, and I'm just kidding. But um, I told him, I said, I'll give it to you in a counselor term. I'm protesting. Now, if you don't know what that word actually means, protesting, uh, in that context, it's a grown-up word for I'm throwing a fit. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. And so, so basically, I, I didn't want to say I'm throwing a fit because that would be small and childish and I'm above fit throwing, I'm protesting. <laughs> I'm just going to protest. <laughs> and so... And so I said, I'm protesting. And he said, well, let's talk about that. And I said, I don't like this. I don't like my life the way it is. This is not what I wrote down when I was in youth camp and asked God for a vision of my life. And when I went to Bible school and I dreamed about changing the world, this was not one of the stops along that path. And I don't like it. And I'm upset about it. It didn't work out. It didn't go right. Everything's ashes. <laughs> I don't like it. I'm protesting it. And we began to talk after I got all that out. We began to talk about what he called radical acceptance. Radical acceptance. Because what radical acceptance is, is just that. When I determine, I will now accept what I have. He has this phrase, you have what you have. One of our elders has a phrase like it. He always says, it is what it is. And as much as you don't want it to be what it is, and as much as you don't want what you have, you have what you have. It is what it is. Now, here's what you need to understand about God. God only works in reality. Because God is truth and truth is reality. And when I protest the reality of the circumstance just because of its negativity, I have taken myself out of the realm where God works. You should write that down because I am helping you and saving you thousands of dollars in counseling. And so many times when we protest the reality of our circumstance and we rebel against the present reality of our situation, we remove ourselves from the sphere where God works because God is truth and will only work in truth no matter how ugly that truth yeah, is. Yeah. And so I had to work on acceptance. So we're going to work on acceptance. And if you're in here and you're like, you know, Pastor, really, 2020 is a great year for me. 2021 is just rocking and rolling. I just can't think of any ashes in my life. Then here's what I'd say. Number one, I don't like you. Number two, <laughs> take notes because somebody around you is sitting in their ashes today. And you could be a blessing. You could help them. All right, let's talk about, write this down, three things. Three things about owning your ashes. Number one, you can't move on from what you won't accept. You cannot move on from what you won't accept. 
Elizabeth Kubler-Ross uh, wrote a book and it's published in 1969 on death and dying. She was the first one to postulate, hypothesize, to come to the conclusion of the fact that when there is loss, we typically go through five different emotions, if you will. Most, most of you have heard those. When there's grief, in other words, grief kind of looks like five things in this process, that there's, um, we start in denial, then there's anger, then there's bargaining, then there's depression, and then we get to acceptance. Um, and, and the goal, she would even say this, the goal really is to get to this place of acceptance. And she even said this, she said, these five stages are tools to help you frame and identify what you feel. They are not stops on a linear timeline. In other words, you don't have to walk through like, well, there's denial and then there's anger and then there's bargaining and I got to spend three months at bargaining before I can get into depression. And she's not necessarily saying that you have to deal with all those or all those last a particular time. She said, these are just things. These are the emotions that we encounter when there's loss. But her work was, was to try to help people understand the goal goal is to get to this place of acceptance. The goal is to get to this place. She actually said that there are only two emotions, fear and love, fear and love. By the way, if you read the Bible, you can prove that, but there are only two emotions, fear and love. In fact, Dr. Caroline Leaf, who wrote the book, uh, Switch on Your Brain, talked about all thoughts come from one or two origins, fear or love. There are only two emotions, right? That's, that's what did John say? Perfect love cast out all fear. And fear has a lot of different forms, doesn't it? Fear can look like a lot of things. Sometimes we're angry because we're afraid. Right? Isn't that true? And we try to get bigger than the thing scaring us. So, um, and so, yeah, don't mess with me. I've been to a lot of counseling. Um, (laughs) my, um, my counselor actually told me, he said, you, you probably at this point almost have like a, an honorary degree in something, you know, and I'm like, thank you. It's, we finally agree here on, no, I'm just kidding. But, um, but the goal is to get to acceptance. And, and, and if you think about these two, there's love and there's fear. And God wants us to come at everything from love. And the enemy wants us to come from everything or to everything from, from fear. And if you think about the, these, even these five um, emotions, if you will, that come, come with grieving, when you think about it, denial is based in fear. It's, it's the fear of the reality. I don't want to deal with the reality, so I deny it, right? So it's a way to cope with fear, right? Anger, again, I'm angry because I'm afraid. I'm going to get bigger than this thing. I'm going to protest. I'm not going to accept it. Bargaining is I'm going to try to bargain with fear. I'm going to try to bargain my way out of fear, right? And depression is I'm scared I'll never get out of fear. I'm stuck in it. And then acceptance is that place coming from that place of where I, oh, this is so good. Acceptance comes from the place of, and this is like Job, I separate me from what happened to me. I I am not what happened to me. And what happened to me doesn't get to tell me who I am. Right? And so I separate these out that now I'm a good person, but I went through something bad. I'm a good person, but I'm dealing with something hard. I'm a good person, but I've got some ashes here. So, so this is basically like God still loves me. God has a plan for me. God has a purpose. God hasn't left me. God hasn't failed me. Just something happened. And yes, there's suffering, but the redemption of all suffering in creation is always glory. God gets glory from all suffering that's given to him. What did Paul say? Your present suffering is not worthy to be compared with the glory that I'll get out of your life. Are you with me? 
And so, and so um, the idea is that when I don't accept, and this is what my counselor's talking to me about, when we won't accept what's going on, when we won't accept what happened, we stay stuck. We stay stuck in it. And, and, and when we're stuck, let me give you three, three things or three ways that you get stuck or three things you get stuck in when we don't move into acceptance. Number one, you stay stuck in the pain. You stay stuck in the pain. Many times in, in depression. Um, now, let me explain something. There's a difference, and, and I'm not a, not a medical doctor. That's not my field. Obviously, we know that. Um, there are things that I don't understand. Here's what I know. There are legitimate medical conditions that create depression. There's chemical imbalances and those things. And so we would never in any way indicate that you should just be able to get out of depression if you have a, a medical condition or, or something beyond my understanding. What I'm talking about when I say depression is what Dr. Dr. Archibald Hart, who was the former dean of psychology at Fulinary Seminary, he called it situational depression. In other words, he could say someone without a chemical imbalance or someone without out a, a medical situation could experience depression if they had a traumatic experience. A traumatic experience could put them in depression or multiple traumatic experiences could put them in depression. And so we go through traumatic things like the, 2020 was traumatized. It could have been a job loss. It could have been the loss of a marriage. It could have been the loss of a loved one. It, it, it could be a big trauma or there can be smaller traumas along the way. And what he said is when we experience traumatic happenings in our life, we can get stuck in depression and and he said, this is a state, and this state is a consequence of an individual's unwillingness or inability to accept their new normal. And when we're not able to come to acceptance, we can stay stuck in depression. That's what he's saying. And, and so when we're not able to come to acceptance, we stay stuck in the pain. Here's another place we get stuck, when, when, when our consequence of being stuck. When we're stuck, we surrender our destiny. Because we stop move, moving forward in the same direction in the same way. In, in other words, if I don't come to acceptance, I don't engage life the same way. I, I let the trauma shape me and I'm not the same coming out of it and I don't engage the same. And now I may be going through the motions but my heart is, is not on fire like it was, or I may be going through the motions of life, but I'm not dreaming like I was. Maybe I'm going through life, but now I keep looking backward at the ashes and not forward to the glory. Yeah. Right? And, and so now I'm, I'm stuck because truth is, there's this law of sowing and reaping. And you, you, you can't reap what you don't sow. And, and if, you, if you sow a half-hearted engagement into life, there's not a way for you to reach total, to reap total fulfillment. To, to, to say it another way, you, you can't reach your full potential with partial engagement. And it's really, a, all these are a trick of the enemy. Like he wants you to be stuck in pain and he sure doesn't want you to, to move forward into your destiny and so he kind of lets hopelessness sink in and says, well, you got to move on, but don't really expect God to still do. Don't really expect to still be. Don't really, don't hope anymore. And then the last one is you can forfeit your favor because your favor is always in your future. Look at Joseph, man. Joseph has some trauma. Beat up by his brothers, thrown in a pit, trauma. Sold as a slave, trauma. Falsely accused, thrown in prison, trauma, right? But, but one thing that's read 
through the story of Joseph is, and the Lord was with him. Put him in the pit, and the Lord was with him. Sell him as a slave, and the Lord was with him. Throw him in prison, and the Lord was with him. Why was God with him? Because he kept accepting his pit. He kept accepting his plight. And he kept accepting his prison. And when you can accept what you have, there is favor always in your future. But when you don't accept, or if you, when you don't accept it, you separate yourself from your favor. Because where is favor? It's wherever God is and God only works in reality and truth. And when you stop, you stop the favor. And so you can't move on from what you won't accept. Here, here's the second thing. How you respond determines how you progress. How you, how you respond determines how you progress. Um, if you think about it, if anyone under our basic understanding of how God's justice should be applied, if anyone was exempt from suffering, it would have been Job. He was blameless righteous. And and I mean, we read it. He was the best, not in the West. He was the best in the East, right? That's why the next best had to move to the West because Job was the best in the East. These are the jokes. I didn't say they were good jokes. They are just, they're just the jokes. Have you ever said a joke and then wished you could take it back? Yeah, I just walked through that. Thank you. For being my support group, anyways. <laughs> but you think about it, Job should have been, he should have been exempt. I mean, Job chapter one starts out how great Job is, literally. But Job learned a lesson that ultimately we all have to learn, and life is going to teach you this lesson. And if you haven't gotten it yet or you haven't articulated it yet, let me give it to you just in a simple phrase. You can drop this in the chat. Life will not go as expected. Right? Isn't that the truth? Like life will not go as expected. January of 2020, (laughs) there are a lot of expectations that no longer exist today because life did not go as expected. Now, now here's, here's kind of this, the secret, and I think this is the testimony of Job. If we can accept the truth that life is not going to go as expected, even though wouldn't it be nice if it would? Wouldn't that be helpful? We get saved. God, I believe in you. By the way, I've kind of wrote, written a plan here of my life, and if you could use your power to make this go this way so that I always get what I expect, wouldn't that be a beautiful world? I see trees of green. <laughs> Red roses too. Come on. I put some Louis Armstrong on you. Yeah. I see them bloom for me and you. So wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great? But it doesn't happen. It doesn't. Life doesn't go. So, so if we could step back for a minute and say, you know what? Life's not going to go as I expect. I would like to think that because 2020 is over, now we're back on course with what I expect. Bless it. (laughs) But if life's not going to go, then I need to develop a skill set 
for how to deal with life when it doesn't go as I expected to. And this is what Job did. And here's the first thing Job did. The skill set that you need to develop that helps you with life when it doesn't go as expected happens before it doesn't go as expected. Right? Like we don't like this because sometimes we live our faith as, oh no, break glass, pull lever. <laughs> we wait for the alarms to go off. Ah, ah, save us! Right? <laughs> but Job started before the crisis. In fact, this is the testimony of maturity. In the life of a believer, Job did not need a crisis to stay committed to God. Because we all know that for some of us, if we didn't have a crisis every six months, we'd never make it to church. Not, not you, not, not us in here. Not us. We got this down. We're here, obviously, today, and no one's having a crisis. <laughs> but for other Christians, the people you can think of that aren't in this room, right? They get laid off, and all of a sudden, they're at every prayer meeting. They get a good job. We don't see them until Easter. Come on, there is a reward for honesty. Remember, where does God work? He works in reality. Let's stay there. What a fun place. <laughs> and so, so the secret of Job and the way he takes on this unexpected, this mess, is the fact that Job started before there was a mess to take on. And he was committed. He was offering sacrifice for him. He was offering sacrifice. Contrast that with Israel. Like read the book of Judges with Israel. It's like they're, they're, they lose a battle and all of a sudden, oh God, we need you. And God blesses and prospers. And then it's like, oh, we'll go after these other gods. Oh, this is a mess. Oh God, we need you. And it's, it's like they have, they're in, they're out. They're up, they're down. They're in, they're out. They're up, they're down, Right. And the truth is, as, as, as we start out in our journey with God and we wrestle all these things, that's kind of normal, really. Those types of things are normal. Like, you know, we come to God, we're a mess, we start praying, and then God starts working in our life, and we start pulling off the throttle a little bit because, because we don't need the pressure now to pray. Because sometimes we only pray when there's pressure, and when we lose the pressure, we lose the prayer. And the secret of Job, he didn't need pressure to pray. He's offering sacrifices for his kids. He's praying for his kids and there's not anything going on wrong with his kids. And so here's the reality is you contrast these two. You have this immature people that are in and out and up and down. And then you have Job who is walking this committed life even when there's not a crisis. He's praying even when there's not pressure to pray. And you realize that the goal, the skill we need to develop is found in the maturity to increase our reliance upon God so that we know we need him even when things are going right. Amen. 
so that we know we need him even when the kids are doing well, so that we know we need him even when the business is prospering. And, and that energy that we were using in the crisis, now we use to take ground, to move forward, to learn about God, to pray for others. Are, are you with me? To, to reach out, to do more, because now we're not under pressure, so we're creating our own pressure. Right? We're creating our own resistance because they're, oh, this is so good. Like, this is the reason you go to the gym. This is why a lot of people don't do well in the gym. They lose five pounds. And then you got to celebrate with four cakes, 87 cookies. Are you with me? I don't know about y'all. I have a sugar addiction. That stuff's wonderful. Candy, candy cane, candy corn, syrup, right? Like, you watch Elf. And so the truth is, like, what I've found, like, just in my own life, I have to, like, we have a goal. I'm going to lose five pounds. You lose five pounds. What I've found is you have to keep changing your goal. You have to keep providing your own pressure so that you'll keep pushing against it. It's the same thing in our relationship with God. When, when I have outside pressure, it's, it's, it's all of a sudden my reaction is pray, press in. But what happens when the outside pressure is released? I've got to create internal pressure that still drives me to God. Like, God, I'm still believing your purpose, your purpose for my kids. I'm going to pray for my grandkids today. I'm going to pray for my kids' spouses today. I'm going to pray for these people at the church today. Like, here's the miracles I want to see in the church. Here's the things I want to happen in my office. Here's the things I want to happen in my company. Here's the things that I want to see just as I engage life and people. I'm going to create some internal pressure that keeps me praying. Some internal criticality that keeps me committed. And that was, that, was, that was Job's secret. And so when you have that mindset, so that's the first thing, you have the mindset to create the maturity to stay committed without crisis. The next thing is when you're coming from that place of maturity, then you know when something happens, you don't blame God. Because your relationship with God is deeper than what he's done for you lately. Right? Because do we not fall into that? Like, I don't want to go too, because I'm taking way too much time, but this is a great message. But, <laughs> but, but do we not fall into that trap that sometimes when bad happens or sometimes our relationship with God is tied to the last good thing he did and when God's not doing the good thing, we're back to that immaturity? And so Job, because of his maturity, his relationship with God wasn't tied to the last thing God did for him or even tied to the thing he was believing for in the moment. It wasn't tied to what God does at all. It was tied to who God is. A relationship built on who God is cannot be shaken. A relationship built on what God seemingly does or doesn't do will always be unsteady. And so, and so Job doesn't blame God. In fact, chapter one, verse 22, it says in all this, Job did not sin by blaming God. And by the way, when, when, even if we're mature, we're, you're, this is the first temptation anytime there's a crisis. The first temptation you're going to have anytime there's a crisis for a righteous person is to blame God. And they blame God even in this one. In fact, verse 16 of Job chapter 1, it says, while he was still speaking, this is one of the messengers. Hey, Job, this just blew up. And then another messenger arrives. The fire of God has fallen from heaven. Time out. Did God send fire from heaven? No. But we, have, we, we are tempted 
when the fire falls, when the destruction comes, when the calamity, say, well, that was the hand of God. But it wasn't the hand of God. But the temptation is to blame it. It goes all the way back to, to Adam and Eve who were perfect. And the enemy is still like, you know, is God really good? Because he said y'all couldn't have that one tree. And if God's really good, he'd give you all the trees. That's all I'm saying. And so Job, Job doesn't blame God. Now, here's what he understands, and, and this is what you need to understand. Here's why the enemy wants you to blame God. Because the moment I make God the bad guy, I'm in deception. I'm no longer in reality. Where does God work? So if God's going to redeem and restore and heal and deliver, he can't do it with me in deception. So if the enemy gets me into deception, I'm no longer in reality. In fact, now I'm distancing myself from the one who has the power to redeem my ashes. And he always wants to create distance between us and God. And so he will be the one saying, hey, it was the fire of God that fell and burned up your business. There's the fire of God that fell and burned up your marriage. No, 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 it wasn't. And when we, when we blame God, we take ourselves out of reality, which is where God works, where our favor is, where our destiny is. And we remove and we distance ourselves between us and the one that can redeem our lives. See, the, the truth of Job, the strength of Job and this maturity that he had, let me, let me show you this. And I know i got to speed up, but anyways, it's just good. You know, I don't know. I don't know how to speed it up. I just, I'm praying about it. But Job, the, the secret is, is in this verse that we read in chapter two where it says, and Job sat in his ashes. The secret of Job is that he accepted what had happened to him. He accepted no denial, no bargaining, no anger, no depression. He accepted it. He accepted it. In fact, Job 2.10, watch this. His Miss, Miss Job tells him, you should just curse God and die. Right? That's Miss Job. And before we get like all hung up on Miss Job, you just got to understand, she'd been through a lot too. So let's not blame Miss Job today. She's probably a wonderful lady until her kids died and everything she had burned to the ground. But at this point, she's like, Job, you're maintaining this innocence that you have, and you just need to curse God and die. And here's what Job said. He said, you are talking like a foolish woman. I don't necessarily recommend that's how you talk in marriage, but <laughs> let the Lord lead you. You're talking like a foolish woman. And this is what he said. Shall we accept good from God and not evil? I, people wrestle with whether he's saying God did the evil. I don't think he is. I think he's just saying we get the blessing. It rains on the just and the unjust. We get the blessings of God, but also this universe is not designed to keep us from suffering. So why should we curse God when finally we have a bad day is what Job's kind of saying. And it was, it was the day to end all days. But still, the idea is that he said, can we accept good and not accept evil? Acceptance is the responsibility that you assume for yourself in the middle of your crisis. It's becoming responsible for me. I may not be responsible for what they did, but I am responsible for what I do. I may not, I'm not responsible for someone else. I may have been abused. I may have been abandoned. 
I may have been let go when someone else probably deserved to be let go, right? I may have been cheated on. I may have been, and you can go on and on. Maybe these things happened to me. I'm not responsible for what they did to me, but I am responsible for what I do with me now. And I, in my opinion, responsibility is the determining factor between living victimized or victorious. People who never assume responsibility for themselves stay stuck. They stay the victim. Listen, if you meet someone and they're always the victim, no matter what, everybody's against them, the world's against them, that person left them, that person mistreated them, that person did, run. And I'll tell you why. Because they still are not owning themselves. I am not what they did. And what they did doesn't determine who I become. I have to step in. And that's what Job said. He said, look, good comes from God and bad stuff happens. And I'll accept both of them. I'll accept the blessing and I'll accept the ashes. And when I get ashes, if I need to, I'll sit down and say, these are my ashes. Because how I respond determines how I progress. And I can't move on from something I don't accept. So I'll take responsibility for me, even if I'm in the the middle of a storm that was created by somebody else. I'm going to own me. Okay, last thing. You can't exchange what you do not own. Oh, this is the best part. I'm glad you made it. If you're still online, write that down. You can't exchange what you don't own. I worked hard to get you to this point. As soon as I catch my breath, I'm on. All right, I'm good. All right, so... The great thing about the Bible is it's so descriptive concerning God. So it tells us who God is, like God is love, but also tells us his function is almost his identity. He's savior. So he saves, right? He's redeemer. So he redeems, right? He's healer. So he heals. He's provider. So he provides, right? And so, and so the Bible is awesome because it tells us who God is. And when we get to the book of Job, it tells us that God is a redeemer. In fact, Job will say, I know my, in the middle of everything, I know my redeemer lives. It's an incredible statement because this is the first time in the Bible, if you've ever heard the term, if you've been around church or whatever, you ever heard the term kinsman redeemer, which we actually see the picture of in the book of Ruth. Boaz was the kinsman redeemer, right? He was the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. And the kinsman redeemer is someone who is, who, who is related by flesh, who has the power to redeem the brokenness in our lives, right? Jesus obviously is our kinsman redeemer, right? He put on flesh, so that he could redeem us, right? And so, and so the kids of Redeemer, they can redeem little things. Like let's say you went to Cabela's and ran up too much on your charge card and you don't have the money to pay. And now the collection agency comes and kids of Redeemer can step in and say, I'm going to pay your bill. So it could be a little thing or it could be a major thing. Like you, you deserve punishment, death or imprisonment. And they could actually say, I'm going to take their place in, in prison. Again, pictures of Jesus. Are you tracking? And so Job is the first one chronologically actually to give us this terminology because he says, I know my Redeemer lives. Now, here's the incredible thing you need to know about God. He redeems, but how does he redeem? He redeems by exchanging. Okay. This is so good. Trust me. Now, these thoughts build on each other. So if you can just hang on for five minutes, the world will be a beautiful place. When you think about the Bible, he exchanges our sin. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteous of God. He exchanges our sin for his righteousness. 
How does he redeem us? He exchanges our sin, our brokenness for his wholeness. Right? He, he exchanges our fear for his love. Um, our healing for his brokenness. No, our brokenness for his healing. Y'all understand. You're, you're tracking. You're smarter than the phrases, right? And so God makes these exchanges where, where we had sin, he makes us righteous. Where we were in captivity, he makes us free. Where we were heavy, he gives us praise. Where we were broken, he gives us healing. And where we have ashes, he gives us. The way God redeems is he exchanges beauty for ashes. Now here's the reality and here's why we work so hard at acceptance because you can't exchange what isn't yours. Until I own it, I can't exchange it. Are you with me? And until, and I think this is why Job had to sit in his ashes because he's like, until I sit in these, God can't do something with them. I can stand over here and say, no, no, no. Because sometimes in Christian, don't we think faith and denial look like the same thing? I think I hit a nerve on that one. <laughs> like we, we think if I have faith, I can't admit that I'm not doing well. If I have faith, I can't admit that this is bad. If I have faith, then I can't admit this sucks right now. And I'm really sick of it and I don't like it. And if we have faith, we can't admit that this is a doctor's report. And we have faith that we can't admit that they actually left. We have faith. So we, we, we call denial faith, but denial goes back to being stuck outside of reality. Yeah. And so the reality is I can't exchange what I don't own. And that's why when we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God exchanges, but he can only exchange what we actually own. So the secret to getting to the exchange table with God is owning the ashes that you've been dealt. I can't protest. I can't be in denial. I'm not going to stay stuck. I'm going to own this. I'm going to be responsible. I'm not going to be a victim. I'm going to be responsible and say this stuff happened, but I'm going to own my ashes. Now, here's the thing. Once I own my ashes, I can give them up. But I have to choose to give them up because here's another place we get stuck. Sometimes people own their ashes so well, they won't give them up. Oh, come on now. Come on. You should have saw that one coming. But isn't it true? Why? Because if you took away my trauma, who would I be really? If you took away, because what happens is, what happens to us becomes a title for us. And have you ever met those people, their title enters the room before they do? Like you hear Eeyore coming. I lost my tail. <laughs> Isn't this true? And, and because the question starts coming when I get, because we want to own our ashes, but we don't want to get comfortable in them. Because when I get real comfortable in my ashes, I start questioning who I am without them. And I almost need the ashes to become the validation for where my life is and the excuse. Come on. Because if I wasn't the divorced person, who would I really be? If I wasn't the diagnosed person, who would I really be? If I wasn't the abused person, the abandoned person, 
the person who can never get ahead. The per- nothing ever goes right for me. Everybody else but not me. If I'm not that person, then who am I? And what happens sometimes we get so good at owning our ashes, we forget the reason you own them is to trade them in. Like God redeems by exchanging. So I've got to own it to exchange it. But once I own it, I'm supposed to exchange it. My life went up in smoke and now all I have is ashes. It's a good thing that I know someone who died to give me beauty for ashes. Everything fell apart and burned up. I know it's horrible. But jump in those ashes, grab that pottery, scrape and sit down just long enough to say, I'm going to accept what has happened in that I'm now going to be responsible to determine what my life's going to look like and which way I'm going to go from here. And I'm not going to blame God. And I'm going to stay committed. And I'm going to press in. And I'm going to trust. That's what Job said. I'm still going to trust him. Even if he slays me, I'm still going to trust God. That's Job's words. Because he said, I'm going to be responsible for me and I'm not going to blame him and I'm not going to blame the fire and I'm not going to blame the wind and I'm not going to blame any of these other things. Like I'm going to own this long enough to exchange it because here's the great thing. God has a great exchange rate because he gave Job double for his trouble. Are you with me? God has a great exchange rate. He'll give you double honor for your shame. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? He'll give you double healing for your brokenness. Like God restores and God redeems and God will exchange. And no matter what your ashes may look like, no matter what your brokenness feels like, no matter how dark it may be or how depressed you may be, you need to understand that God gives beauty for ashes. So jump in there, own your ashes, and then go to God and exchange them and say, I'm going to give you my ashes because I know you still have the same plan and the same purpose and the same calling and the same hope for me that what has happened to me has not determined or detoured your plan and purpose for me and if I'll give you my ashes you'll still show me your glory come on somebody's good I'm out of breath so it must be done God wants to exchange your ashes for his beauty. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? God, thank you so much for your faithfulness. God, thank you that you are a redeemer. God, that you're a deliverer. God, that you're an exchanger. You're an exchanger. And maybe there's somebody, whether you're in this room or whether you're watching online, maybe you just need to exchange some things today. Maybe you've been stuck too long. And it may be you were stuck because you couldn't own your ashes. It's just too hard. Or maybe you're stuck because you owned them so well you couldn't let go of them. But either way, today, God wants you to exchange them. 
So God, I pray you just give people the courage. Give them the courage. Give us all the courage. God, to own what we can't understand and to exchange some of the hardest places in our lives and trust that you've got something better. With every head bow, we just take a moment. We do this every, every time we're together, but we just take a moment and say, God, what do you want to speak to me? And I would encourage you to, to just take a moment where you're at, in your seat or in your living room, wherever you're at, and just say, God, what do you want to say to me? Give him that opportunity just to speak. And God, I pray you speak to every person. And while we're in this room, we're just listening for God. And if you're at home, don't stop now. Just keep listening for God. But I just wonder if there's anybody in, in this room or watching online that you needed to make the determination to trust Jesus. Maybe you've never surrendered your life to him. And I'm not asking if you're religious or if you've ever gone to church, but I'm asking, do you have a relationship with Jesus? not asking if you've prayed a prayer or been water baptized. Those are certainly wonderful things. We do those because we have a relationship with Jesus. But I'm asking, do you have a relationship with Jesus? And if not, I want to pray for you. And if you're like, hey, how would I know? Well, it's simple. You know if you have a relationship with Jesus. And if you don't, the Holy Spirit kind of tells us. He'll give you a little nudge on the inside that kind of says, hey, that's you. Psst, hey. And so if, you're, if, if that's where you're at and, and you want to pray, whether you're online or in the room, I'd love to pray with you. So no one's looking around. I just want to know who I'm praying with. So if you're in this room, you're like, hey, that's me. I need to surrender my life. I want a relationship with Jesus. Would you just lift your hand? No one's looking around and say, yeah, God bless you. Awesome. Celebrating with you. Fantastic. Yeah. Awesome. So cool. And online as well. We want to pray with you too. And so if you're in this room, it's, it's really, it's just this, this decision. That's what it really is. It's, this profession of faith where you just say, and you use your own words with something like this, God, I believe in you. I believe in Jesus. I believe he died and rose again for me. I ask you to forgive me. Make me a new person. Help me to live for you. And God, I just pray today as they make that decision, God, that you will make yourself known to them, that they will sense your presence, that they will hear your voice. God, that you will lead them. God, thank you for everyone in this room. God, for their faith and God, for their courage. And God, for those today that are dealing with owning ashes and trading in ashes, God, give them strength, give them courage. Lord, today, ultimately, we put all of our trust and faith and confidence in you, no matter what we see around us. And God, we thank you because you're always faithful. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Come on, you got one more praise or shout or clap. or. I'm going to ask our prayer team to come. If you need prayer, we would love to pray with you. If you're online and need prayer or you would rather someone call you to pray with you, you can text my pathway prayer to 77977. Outside of that, if you need prayer, we want you to come. Everybody else, we say a big God bless you. We love you, and we'll see you next weekend.